So I want to tell you about, I think, the one event in my life that could qualify as an episode for Touched by an Angel. Remember that CBS show? Very maudlin, very sentimental. Perhaps some of you are fans of it. If I seem to make a little fun of it, forgive me. <laughs> I call it in my life the miracle of Murphy Brown. I'll give you some context in my life at the time, what was going on. This was the spring of 1995, and I was just starting to emerge for months of being a triple threat neurotic. I can joke about it now. It was not funny back then, and if you find yourself struggling with some of the same issues, well, please know that I know what it's like to be a fellow sufferer, and if you want to come and talk about it, please do. It's just actually the fact that I can laugh about it now actually feels like a tremendous blessing in my life. I had obsessive compulsive disorder, panic disorder, and acute depression. And really what it came from, I think I was sort of destined to head this road anyway, but really what made it most acute in my life was that it was delayed grief from about two and a half years before when my mom had dropped dead unnecessarily and ultimately preventably. Uh, just completely sudden death on Thanksgiving Day of 1992. Soren Kierkegaard, one of my favorite theologians, philosophers, said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. If you've ever had panic disorder, you know that that is not at all a theoretical statement. That is exactly what it is like. It's amazing that all that's been written by psychologists and clinicians over the last 150 years doesn't reach the truth of what that kind of fear is like in the same way that Kierkegaard captured it in the 1840s. It's amazing. And the way particularly that he expressed it and got it right, and the way I felt it in my life, is that I couldn't sleep. I couldn't let my guard down. So it was like, it was sort of like there was this little man. I pictured him now. This is the way I make peace with him, because he's still a part of me, even if he's a lot smaller than he used to be. Kind of like, um, um, like a Monty Python character with like these silly French hats from the 1700s, and he's standing there, and he's standing sentry to almost guard me through the night. Now, the problem was he was more powerful at the time than I was. And so the problem was I couldn't sleep. I was a 25-year-old man. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I was afraid of the dark, afraid of the dark more inside of my heart than outside of it. But I just had such a tough time letting go. And so I watched a lot of television. I watched a lot of late-night television. And the place we were living was an apartment in New York City that had, in the mid-'90s, almost a little bit of a predecessor to the mini satellite dishes that people have now. The whole apartment building had one big satellite dish they put right up on the top. And because of it, we got an L.A. Radio, uh, television station called KTLA. And so at 2 to 3.30 in the morning... On L.A. time, this is how I would sort of lull myself into a place where I could finally let go. I would watch the 11 o'clock slash 2 a.m. Los Angeles news from KTLA, and then I'd watch Cheers at 2.30. Now, Cheers is in a way absolutely comforting and absolutely awful because no one ever changes. <laughs> I had a professor in college who said that Cheers is just waiting for Godot, if you remember that Samuel Beckett play, recast into the 1980s in Boston. <laughs> Actually, it's right, and that's not a happy play. Beckett was not a happy guy. So Cheers, it gave me some comfort, though. This, you know, everyone knows your name. I felt that sort of no one in the universe knew my name at that time. At least in Cheers, I felt, you know, hey, like I said, I was not doing well. After that came on 
Murphy Brown. And I wasn't a Murphy Brown fan, but I needed some voices in the background to sort of still me enough where I could let go. So this was 2.30 in the morning on April the 10th, two and a half years after my mom's death. And April the 10th was my mom's birthday. So it was a day that had some meaning for me, mostly still sadness at that point, not much celebration. And it was the episode of Murphy Brown that I had never seen before, and I don't think I've seen since, in which Murphy Brown and her mother, they had a very charged, unhappy relationship, well, as unhappy as things actually get in a sitcom. She was played by the actress Colleen Dewhurst, who some of you might remember. And Colleen Dewhurst had, in the months before, died herself in actual real life. And so the episode of Murphy Brown was the one in which Murphy Brown's character learns that her mother has died and has to say goodbye. And at first fights it off with anger and then gallows humor. And then at the very end, I mean, this is a sitcom and it's not even a half hour. Sitcom's about 22 and a half minutes and has this false sitcom resolution. But at the end, she really lets to start it sink in. And there I was at 2.30 in the morning, crying and smiling in my bed and feeling the greatest measure of peace I had in two and a half years. Now, what's the meaning of this? Is it truly, does it truly rise to the level of miracle? I would say no, but, you know, the odd happenstance of Murphy Brown doesn't sound nearly as good as the miracle of Murphy Brown, so that's what we're going with. I think it could have been one of those sentimental beliefnet.com testimonials. How a sitcom brought my mom back to me. It worked that way. I mean, I could really push this line here. I could really, really push it. Remember, the show was being beamed to me from Los Angeles, the city of the angels. (laughs) It's a wonderful life. You know, every time someone is moved by a sitcom, a... Television writer gets their wings or something like that. I can really, really, really push this line. But angels in that way aside, and I don't believe in that particular conception of angels, I would say that the effect was angelic in this way. G.K. Chesterton, the English Anglican writer, said that angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. Angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. And my being, which had been so horribly heavy and dizzy for those last two and a half years, for the first time in a long time felt light. And so you could say, stretching the meaning of angelic a little bit, that perhaps I was visited by the angels that night. So all those jokes aside, that was the meaning, that was the effect. That it was the least lonely, most connected I had felt with my mom's memory in two and a half years. In the simulated world of TV, I had found another mourner, and I had found a connection. Now, did I really get better in that moment? Was I healed? No, not yet. There were many struggles to come. See, I was not yet grounded enough to live out the implications of this little miracle, this odd little happening. But that is not the miracle's fault. See, the miraculous event, the odd coincidence that seems like much more than just coincidence, the opportunity for grace, whatever you want to call it, Maybe it's this, the inexplicable inbreaking of insight and interconnection. These things can happen anywhere, at any time, to anyone. And it did give me a measure of peace, more than I had some time, as I mentioned. 
but not the full meaning of peace. The realization of the fullness of moments like that, like I experienced, they have to have legs if they're going to walk with us beyond just that moment. And I wasn't ready to walk with it. For me, that moment would not come until years later. So last week I talked about two different understandings, two different meanings of miracles. The first is sort of the everyday conception that we might think of it. The violation of the laws of daily observable life, daily observable nature. Now this is definitionally unreliable. We cannot, I believe, place my stock in these miracles, not to say they don't happen. I mean, I don't discount them, but neither do I count upon them. Miracles cannot do the real work of a true religious life for us because spirituality comes down to the experience of trust. So this leads to the second understanding of what is miraculous. And I think this is very real. The miraculous is anything that causes us to grow in wonder and to awaken to awe. To awaken to the capacity in our lives for awe. This awakening moves us beyond the anywhere but here syndrome, which too often miracles in the popular conception are talk about. It took me somewhere else. Sometimes that conversation goes. But I believe the truest miracles reveal to us this very moment. Show us a different understanding of what our lives are right here, right now, and what they can be. See, at the base of every miracle story really is this moral. That reality, just plain old everyday reality, can become something amazing. Seamus Haney is one of my favorite poets. He wrote a great little play a number of years ago called The Curate Troy. And this is how he explains what is miraculous. He says, call the miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing double take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain you see, or lightning or storm, and a God speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its turn. All the traditional language of stars in the sky or magi or oil burning miraculously, whatever it is, all those pronouncements, all those revelations, really what they're saying is life has moved out of the category of being a waiting game for someday, somehow, somewhere to hear and now and in our midst, the miraculous has been revealed. Life no longer becomes that waiting game. And we experience life as the moment, the very moment here and now of conception. Not as a concept, not as a thought, but as something that goes beyond all concepts. Some call it God consciousness. Some psychologists might call it the self fully actualized, fully realized. And I want to quote those great philosophers, Gloria Stefan and the Miami Sound Machine. <laughs> they were right in approaching the miraculous Words get in the way. Words do get in the way, and we have to trust that the experience itself is just enough. These moments of delivery, of the birth moment, of the fullness of life, what Haney calls the utter self-revealing, the double take of feeling, causes us to take a second look and a third look and a deeper look, and indeed to have new eyes for seeing this life that we love and can learn to love deeper. Thich Nhat Hanh, in a, one of my favorite books, it's called Living Buddha, Living Christ, 
And he's really trying to not bridge the gap because he understands there are differences, but he's trying to create common conceptions, common understandings at the basis of practice between his own Buddhist tradition and Christianity. And I got to say, when I first read this sentence, it just liberated me. It's one of my favorites. He said, and I think actually he really echoes Whitman when Whitman said, argue not concerning God. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh said. He said, discussing God is not the best use of our energy. If we touch the Holy Spirit, we touch God not as a concept, but as a living reality. This is how we articulate it here at Wellsprings. We can experience the divine without defining the divine. Really what I think comes down to is the ability in our lives to practice the present moment in such a way that it opens up to the experience of presence. Big P. Experience this present moment, this present life in such a way that it opens up. It flowers, if you will. It flourishes to the experience of presence of that life, ultimately, I think, without name, that your own life is animated by, and ultimately, your own life is included within. This gets us beyond thinking about miracles as a product, you know, counting on a miracle, waiting for a miracle, as a discrete, distinct event, that if it comes well, everything we wanted, all our prayers are being fulfilled. And yet, if it does not come, We wonder, has the spiritual life, has our religion at all been worth it in the least? It is moving from miracles as a product to miracles as a process. This is a cultivated way of being in the world where we are all and become capable of living a miraculous life. Thich Nhat Hanh calls this the experience of interbeing. I don't know how many of you have ever heard him talk about this or write about that. The experience of interbeing. He's got a great example where he talks about holding up a piece of paper. And truly, if we are experiencing this very piece of paper as an example of interbeing, we will see not just a piece of paper. We will see the tree that it came from and the dirt that it grew in and the logger who felled it and what the logger had for breakfast and who the logger's father and mother might have been. The point is, like the old ragu commercial, it's all in there. It's all in here. Life truly is present, and we can move from that separation to connection. We have that perception that all life intersects with life. Haney, the poet, put it this way. In that play, the cure of Troy, he says, Stop licking your wounds. Start seeing things. Stop licking your wounds. Start seeing things. And this makes even more sense because the poet has put so much of his life and his energies to writing about his own native Ireland and the troubles and the pain and the violence and the suffering that has come from one side licking their wounds and another side licking their wounds and then the other side saying, I will inflict more of those wounds upon you and the other side responding exactly in kind. Stop licking your wounds. Start seeing things. See, because when we see each other, we see the connection. When we see this life, we see the connection. And we know that any act, any act that violates it, even if we believe it to be necessary, is ultimately a transgression against this life. And we don't want to do that. Now, 
in our personal lives, in our personal lives, the here and now. Stop licking your wounds. Start seeing things. This is that movement from carrying around, as we all like to do, as I like to do, certainly, and carrying around those old gripes and grudges and misgivings and moving into what life is now, being liberated to live the life that is given to us. Last week, I ended my message with this question for you, with this opportunity for you. I said, would you please see one fresh thing this week? That's all I want you to do. Please see one fresh thing. And think about that for a second while I get one fresh sip of water. Well, the truth is that was actually kind of a trick question for you. Because I didn't want you to see one new thing. I didn't want you to see one novel thing. In fact, and actually some of you got back to me, and they weren't new things at all. See, the fresh thing you might see might be absolutely the most obvious thing that is in front of you every day. It might be the thing that is there, the person that is there, the people that are there every day. They become fresh when we don't take them for granted. Like that old cliche, so much in life just comes down to, depends how you look on it. Depends how you look at it. So much of our life, so much of the meaning we have in life come down to cultivating this kind of attitude. Now, how do we? How do we cultivate this kind of attitude on a regular basis? Well, that actually is what this word means. How many of you have heard that word before? Raise your hands if you have. Okay. Dainu. What does it mean? Answers? Enough. Enough. It's from the Seder. It's from the Passover Seder. It's from the story of liberation of the ancient Israelites from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And the recitation goes in the Haggadah, in the story of the liberation. It says, if God had you know, not brought us out of the desert, and you know, that would have been it. Dainu, enough. You know, if God had you know, brought us to the desert and not given us the law, enough. Dainu, not given us the law, but not led us toward the promised land. Dainu, that's how it continues. Basically, that's the saying. It would have been sufficient. It is sufficient. So let's take probably the most, one of the most famous miracle stories there it is. You know, the loaves and the fishes miracle story, the feeding of the 5,000s it's sometimes called. Well, how does that story work? It's the wrong question. Get the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. How does that story work is a question for a magician. Where is the rabbit in Jesus's hat that he can make the five loaves and fishes enough to feed the 5,000? That's not what the story is really about. What the story is really about is about Dainu. See, because we can have so much in this life, and if we believe that it is not enough, it truly will not be enough. If, however, what we believe what we have is Dainu, sufficient, we can face what is here, and we can work with what is here. We say to ourselves, well, this is where we are, so this must be where we are supposed to start from. It doesn't mean things will change. It means they will change. But to start with that attitude of dainu, it is enough. It isn't impatience. It isn't saying, you know what, I'm not going to wait. Because really what dainu is about, saying it is enough, it is sufficient, is both radical gratitude for what we have and it is radical openness to what will come. Radical gratitude for what we have and radical openness to what will come eventually. It is what many traditions call, especially some Buddhist traditions, call the experience 
of being completely full and then willing to be completely empty. Fullness and emptiness, partners. Now, that might sound like a really sort of odd mystical concept. And in some ways it is. And actually the phrase mystical concept is itself oxymoronic. There are no mystical concepts. The minute something starts becoming a concept, it ceases being mystical. But these are the best words I have, folks. I'm going to give you an example. How can something be simultaneously completely full and completely empty? Well, you are doing it right now. If your lungs were completely full all the time, you would die. If your lungs were completely empty all the time, you would be dead. It is only because emptiness follows fullness, which then follows emptiness, which then follows fullness, which then follows emptiness, which then follows fullness. That's what makes life possible. It is the radical gratitude for the breath that is, and then the exhale, giving it back. That ultimately is what all mysticism comes down to. Emptiness and fullness are partners. And what I'd like to ask you to do, to practice, if you will, to practice this way of experiencing the miraculous, not as a product, but as a way of living life, is to start a dying new practice. Start saying to yourself, it is sufficient. Start saying to yourself, I am here and I'm at work and I'm having a problem. Dainu. Start saying to yourself, the kids are driving me nuts. Parents, say it. (laughs) It is sufficient. I'm in pain right now. I don't know how I can handle this. You know, and those fears come about and we want to fly from that place. Just say, Dainu, the joy that you possess right now, it is enough. Dainu, it is sufficient. See, this holiday season, the reason I'm preaching this message right now, this message series, because this holiday season is really so much about spectacles. And we are led astray by spectacles. (laughs) All the sense of the things we got to do and have to do and should have done after the fact. So we reserve and wait those, you know, regrets for after New Year's. I think a lot of people actually don't have New Year's resolutions. They have New Year's regrets in terms of looking back on the year that was. That happens when we get caught up in the spectacle of the moment. But really the miracles of this season, the processes of this season that are miraculous. The turning of the seasons. On December 21st. The next day, we don't get a lot more light. We get a little more light. Dainu. The lights on the menorah miraculously somehow stayed lit for eight days. Big whoop. (laughs) And yet, Dainu. It is a sufficient miracle. A small child is born in a backwater of ancient Israel. And there's not even any room for him at the end. But he's born, and I believe this, a universalist. <laughs> he is. He takes us his tradition and he stretches it out. The same way that Tiknahat Han takes his tradition and stretches it out. So it can become more encompassing. A small child, a small place, a forgotten place. These are not big things. 
This is not the law given from on high. This is not the Red Sea's parting. This is not someone sitting 40 days and 40 nights meditating or praying in a way that we know would be physically impossible. The things of this season, if we return to them, are all dainu. Teaching us, asking us, sometimes begging us, pay attention. Pay attention. And your life will be sufficient. Your life will be dainu. And it will be a blessing. Amen, and may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Presence with a capital P. We would open ourselves this day to you, who is not a you, but it is our best language. We would open ourselves to that depth of reality that invites us in at all times, that experience that is truly miraculous. We pray to cultivate the soul of Dainu within each and every one of us. We pray to move beyond spectacle and into meaning. We pray to move beyond the hope for huge, huge, tremendous things that we hope will make us happy someday and into the many resources that are here and so rich in our midst and in our hands and with us and between us right now. We pray that our lives are sufficient and also that we can reach out when they don't seem like they are and find instead perhaps not Dayenu between us, but the sufficiency among us as we share our lives. Amen and may it be so.